you, you, uh, you talk about timing. Man, it, it, it happened this week, y'all. I, I got a visit from hell. Um, the Jehovah's False Witnesses came to my house. Um, and I mean, and, and the, the, the moans and groans from the crowd, if you're, a, if you're a guest with us, for the last five weeks, this is the ground that we have been covering. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm at my house this week. I'm studying. I mean, that's the reason that I'm there. And lo and behold, they, they're there. Is, we, we've got this, this glass door. You know, our, our, our door is open, and we live on a split level. So I'm coming from the basement where my office is, and I'm, I'm looking up, and yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's obvious who they are. You know, the, the tie, the briefcase, the, the whole gig. And, and, and maybe some of you, maybe if you haven't been here, maybe you take a little bit of offense to me calling this a visit from hell. And, and you may want to just take your Bible and look over at the book of Second John and verse 7 to know why I say that the way that I do. I don't want it to sound like, you know, we just hate everybody on, under the planet. But you do need to understand exactly what a visit from the Jehovah's False Witnesses is. That's exactly what Second John verse 7 says that it is. It's a visit from hell. Okay, and so I, I come to the door and, uh, you know, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, you always got to find out where they're, where they're coming from. They, they've always got, you know, the, the latest watchtower or the latest awake. And, and they're going to they're gonna try to refer you to something on this. And it just happens to be a subject that I absolutely love that they are talking about on the cover. It's the inspiration of the Bible, Okay. Now, this is ground we've covered a whole lot. I mean, we took almost two years to cover this ground in this church. And so this guy is going to start talking to me about the inspiration of the Bible. And he's showing me stuff in the literature about how many billions of copies of the Bible that have been all around. And, and so he starts talking about the fact. And so we're, we're out encouraging people to, to read the Bible. Okay. Now, and, and this is... This is the way I think that you've got to deal with them. And we've, we've talked over the last several weeks a whole lot about how, how you deal with it. Um, it look, look on your study sheet there. The first thing that I think you need to do when dealing with them, press the issue they want you to agree upon. Press the issue they want you to agree upon. You see, what they're doing, guys, and they are slicker and snot, man. They, they come to you. And they want to find a place where they know they can agree with you. Because do you know they feed off of religious people? They love to come to a Baptist home. Did you know that? They love it. Because, oh, the foundation has already been set. That's why they come with something like the inspiration of the Bible. You know what? You talk to people who are outside of religious circles, they don't even know what the inspiration of the Bible is. Right? So we're just out talking about the inspiration of the Bible. Oh, I love that, right? How many of you believe that the Bible is inspired? See that thing? See? They, they, they want to find a place to agree with you on. So press it, right? Here's what I said. Oh, well, that's, that's interesting. Now, what, what version of the Bible is it that you're encouraging people to read? Oh, well, it, it doesn't really matter which one. Now, I use, I, said, I, I use the New World Translation because most people have a, a King James. And it really doesn't matter to us. What's important to us is just that people begin to read the things that God said. You see? Oh, 
Amen, brother. Well, God bless you. <laughs> no. So here's what I said. You know, that, that's interesting. Because if all of the Bibles are inspired, then how is it that Bibles say different things? So if, if one Bible says something here, and, and this Bible in the same exact place says something completely different, then are they both the inspired Word of God? I said, I, I learned this, this little principle that things that are different are not the same. I mean, that, that's, that's deep theology right there, but, but it's true. And he says, well, I, I don't get what you mean. I said, oh, okay, well, here's what I mean. Your Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1 that Jesus is a God. My Bible says he is the God. So you see, they can't both be the inspired Word of God because they say something completely different. So he said, well, let's just go over there. <laughs> so, you know, he, he takes his, his book and he goes over to, uh, to John chapter 1 and he, he starts reading it. In, in, the beginning, um, in the beginning, God was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, small g. And he says, now... In verse 14, it lets you know exactly who that is. And he talks about the Word becoming flesh. And he says to me, so now, who is the Word then? I said, well, in my Bible, he is Jesus. In your Bible, I don't know who he is. Because it says that he is a God. And you see, my Bible says he is the God. That's what I'm showing you. Things that are different are not the same. He says, you believe in the Trinity, don't you? And this is the second thing that I think that the way that we deal with them. Address the source behind their teaching. Address the source behind their teaching. Now guys, I, I already know this is a false prophet who has come to my door. The book of 2 John. Remember we studied this three, four weeks or so ago? It tells you exactly the way that you deal with them. Okay, and the way that we deal with them, the book of 1 John, the book of 2 John, it is clearly laid out in Titus. He says, they subvert whole households and their mouths must be, they must be stopped. So some of you are going to wig out on the, on the way that I handled this. So you believe in the, the Trinity? I said, yes, I do. And I want you to know something. Do you know what the Bible says about people who do not believe the Trinity? Do you know what it says? People who teach what you teach, do you know what the Bible says about them? He says what? I said, well, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 22, it says that you are a liar. It says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, you are a false prophet. It, it says in the book of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 22 again, it says you are a seducer. It says you are an antichrist. The book of 2 John verse 7 says you are a deceiver and that you work from the spirit of error. And you can already see his fate. He's not a happy camper. And uh, this, is, this is the thing that agrees with him. He's got a, a, a kid with him that's probably 12 years old. Dressed the same exact way with the briefcase, the whole shot. The door's still, I mean, they're, they're not in my house, you know. We're at the door. And I, I got out to where I can hold the door with my shoulder. And I got down on my knees. Or my, 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 put my hands on my knees like this. And I looked at that guy eyeball to eyeball. And I said, son. I want to just encourage you. Get a Bible. 
and read these verses, I'm telling you, because what they're teaching you is demonic. This guy says, well, sir, uh, I appreciate uh, the things that you believe. And I said, well, you know what? I just want to tell you, I don't appreciate the things that you believe because the Bible gives the source of those things. I'm not going to let him, uh, I'm not going to let him off, right? You address the source and you just keep pounding that thing. You're working from a spirit of error. And so basically, a conversation is done. And you know what? You may, some of you still, maybe you're, you, you may need to go back and, and read Second John again and some of the verses that, that we've looked at if that's bothersome to you. But I do believe this, guys. I mean, just, just look around. Pretty good representation right here in Tuscarawas County. And if every single person would address the source behind the human teacher, remember, that's what we've seen. That's a, a human being that's right there. But They are working by a spirit of error. They are working through doctrines of devils and seducing spirits, and you've got to address that because they have been warped from that. And and maybe if enough people addressed the source, maybe, just maybe, it might jolt them to begin to look at the Scripture uh, again without their slant. But this is what we've been, been covering, and just interesting that it should happen this past week. How many of you in the last week or two, have had somebody hit your door. Okay, quite a few of us. They're out, y'all, so, so, so get ready, okay? Get, get ready. Okay, and let's take just a second to review some of the things, excuse me, that we've been studying. We've been, actually, believe it or not, this is <clears throat> all within a study of the book of Revelation. Uh, we, we're studying chapter 1. We got to verse 8 of Revelation chapter 1, where... The book of Revelation lays down for us a very key doctrine, the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ, this very subject that that, that we're talking about. And and what we're doing, the reason that we've taken such a long time on this is we're we're trying to study that doctrine and make sure that we understand it in light of the culture that we're living in and in light of the fact that we are living precisely at the time that the book of Revelation talks about where the things in this book, where it says at the end of verse 3, the things in this book are at hand. It says at the end of verse 1, or the middle of verse 1, that these are things that must must shortly come to pass. And, And so we're understanding, we are living right now in the last days, and we know what the Bible has to say concerning doctrine in the last days. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 says that the time we're living in is a time when men will not endure sound doctrine. So we know that already. And here we're dealing with the most important doctrine in the Bible. God says in the last days, people won't endure sound doctrine. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, he said not only that, but that the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter days, what is going to take place on this planet is men are going to begin to listen or take heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And so what we've been trying to do is understand that is what the Bible prophesied concerning this time. And the reason we've taken six weeks to cover this is because we want to make sure we endure sound doctrine and how it is that we know that Jesus Christ is who he says that he is, that he is in fact Jehovah God. And we've covered four key proofs already. Roman numeral number one, we've seen that the Old Testament predicted a divine Savior would come. 
The Old Testament predicted a divine Savior would come. Now, it would be one thing if Jesus came to this planet and, and as a human being, he just out of nowhere started claiming to be God, but it isn't that way at all. The Old Testament prophesied the fact that God himself would come to this planet in that kind of a way. I mean, hey, it's no stretch to believe God became a man because that's exactly what Jehovah God of the Old Testament said that he would do, and we gave you scripture to prove that. Not only that, number two, in this argument, number two, it is irrefutable, guys. I mean, this you can bank on this one. I mean, if you could just go to the Bible and just find somewhere where it says that Jesus Christ is, in fact, Jehovah, you blow their entire theology to kingdom hall, to, to kingdom come, man. And see, and that's what we did in on number, Roman numeral number two, because the Bible does, in fact, specifically refer to Jesus Christ as Jehovah. And again, we covered the verses on that. Number three. We saw that the titles reserved only for Jehovah. And we went through the scripture, and with every one of these, we talked about, we, we showed where the Old Testament said that this is true only of Jehovah, and those are applied to Jesus Christ. And number four, we saw that the attributes that are characteristic only of Jehovah are characteristic of Jesus Christ. Now, if you weren't here for those messages, uh, maybe you've been sick, maybe you've been out of town, maybe this is the first time you've ever come, I'd encourage you to, to get the tapes on this so that you can endure sound doctrine and know why you believe what you believe so that nobody can ever come to your door and talk you out of the fact that Jesus is anything less than Jehovah God. And, and listen, we're not trying to promote tape sales. You don't even have to buy the tapes. You can talk to the, the people in the tape ministry about our lending library. Okay, you, you don't have to buy every tape around here. Just you get set up on that deal, they can tell you how to do that. But this morning, now we come to Roman numeral number five on your outline. The next proof that Jesus Christ is God, and it is this. Jesus receives the worship reserved only for Jehovah. Jesus receives the worship reserved only for Jehovah. <clears throat> now, God made it extremely clear in the Old Testament that He, Jehovah God, was the only God who was to be worshipped. I mean, what is the, the first, the very first of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt what? Have no other gods before me. In, in fact, why don't you turn back there. The book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible... Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20 is where God is, is giving to Moses the, the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, and let's pick up in verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God. And for those of you who have not been with us, one of the things that we've covered over the last five weeks is would you look in your Bible at the word Lord, and do you notice that it is a capital L with a smaller capital O-R-D? Every time that you find that in your Bible, what the translators are letting you know by that is that is the Hebrew word Jehovah. They delineate that for you so you know exactly what you're dealing with. Now, there's other times where you see a capital L with a small O-R-D, okay? 
That's a different word altogether. But with a capital L with a smaller capital, O-R-D, it is in reference to Jehovah God. So he says, I am Jehovah thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Verse 3, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Verse 5, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, Jehovah, am a jealous God. So it's absolutely clear. There's one God, and He alone is to be worshipped and served. Now turn over to chapter 34 of the book of Exodus. In Exodus 34, He repeats the principle or the command. 34, and look at verse 14. <clears throat> for thou shalt worship no other God for the Lord, Jehovah, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And God repeats the principle, not because He forgot that He just said that. He is repeating that because He is trying to show you how important this principle is to Him. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, just go over three books to the right if you're new to your Bible. The book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and look with me at verse 13. <clears throat> Thou shalt fear the Lord, again, Jehovah thy God, and serve Him, and shalt swear by His name, ye shall not go after other gods, of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee, and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. And I mean, I don't think God could make it any more clear. You worship and serve only one God, and it is to be Jehovah, the one true God. Will you give me that? I mean, that is absolutely the teaching of Scripture. And you need to understand something, guys. Jesus knew and understood this commandment. This did not come as a shock to him. He knew it. In fact, it was affirmed in Matthew chapter 4 by Jesus himself. Turn over there if you would. It was affirmed by Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 4. And of course, the, the context here in, in Matthew chapter 4 is when Jesus is led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And look at what it says in verse 8. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Verse 10, Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, and, and here, here he's going to quote the very scriptures that we just read together from the Old Testament. Here it is. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him, what's the next word? Only shalt thou serve. And the point I'm wanting you to see here is Jesus fully understood that Jehovah God is the only one who is to be worshipped. Okay, now just file that for now. It was affirmed by Jesus Himself. But not only that, in Acts chapter 10, it was also affirmed by Peter. 
Now turn there if you would. It was affirmed by Peter, Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, God has instructed Peter to go to a man's house by the name of Cornelius. And verse 25 <clears throat> lets you know what happened when he got there. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And, and watch Peter's response. Verse 26. But Peter took him up. Okay, now, are you getting a picture of that? This guy falls down at his feet and it's not like he said... He grabs him by the shirt, by the robe, whatever, and he stands him up. And look at what he said. I myself also am a man. Peter understood there's only one who is to be worshipped, and it certainly isn't a man. It is only Jehovah God. And listen, Peter was not about to allow anybody to worship him. He wasn't about to let anybody bow before him. He wasn't about to let anybody kiss his ring or anything of the kind. Now you need to file that. There's a whole lot being said there that's not being said. You see that thing? He understood there's only one that you worship, and it is Jehovah God. Now turn over just a, a couple of pages to Acts chapter 14, where there's a similar story over here, but this time the truth of who alone is to be worshipped is affirmed by Paul. Acts chapter 14. And in Acts chapter 14 and verse, verse 6, Paul and, and Barnabas come into Lystra. Verse 7 says they, they are coming in to preach the gospel. And look at verse 8. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him, that is, Paul steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, you see, they, they knew that this guy had never walked in his life. They, 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 they lived in that town. When they saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lycaonia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands into the, under the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities. What vanities? Worshiping other gods unto the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in, therein. The true God. He's the only one who is to be worshipped. And, and Paul says, for crying out loud, man... Don't worship us. And I mean, and it's so so appalling to him. Do you see, they, they, they rent their clothes, which was in that Jewish culture, it was a, a demonstration of, of deep grief and an extreme indignation. 
I mean, they, they didn't want to leave any doubt in anybody's mind about how detestable and how deplorable it would be for anyone but Jehovah God, the living God, to receive worship of men. It was affirmed by Paul. Let me show you one other one in, Act, in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. It is also affirmed by angels. Now, in Revelation 19, John is in the midst of, of getting himself absolutely blown away by everything that he's seen in the, in the Revelation. And, and God has an angel that has been with him, serving as a, sort of a guide. And in Revelation 19, John gets so blown away, he gets, he gets so excited and so overwhelmed. Look at what he says he did in, in verse 10. John writes, and I fell at his feet. Now, this is the angel's feet. This is the guy that's been, the angel that's been guiding him along. He says, and I fell at his feet to worship him. Watch his response. And he said unto me, see thou do it not. In other words, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't worship me. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. What was, what was the testimony of Jesus? We just saw it just a little bit ago, right? Matthew chapter 4. His testimony was worship God, only Him. And, and turn over to Revelation 22. I mean, I mean, John's a real cool dude, but he makes the same mistake over here. Chapter 22 and, and verse 8. And I, John, saw these things and heard them, and when I had heard and seen... I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, the angel, See thou, do it not. Come on, man. We already covered this ground. I already told you this. I am thy fellow servant. I'm a a servant of God just like you are and of thy brethren, the prophets, and, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. You see? The angels affirmed it as well. The teaching of this book is you worship God and God alone. The Old Testament affirmed it. The angels affirmed it. They never received worship from anybody. They refused to, to wor- anyone that worshipped them. They rebuked those who tried to worship them. The Apostle Paul affirmed it. He refused to be worshipped. He rebuked all of those who tried to worship him. Peter comes along. He won't receive worship. He rebukes those who try to worship him. But what's real interesting is on numerous occasions throughout his ministry, Jesus accepts worship. Jesus accepts worship. And never, never, not on any occasion or from any person did he ever refuse anyone's worship Never did he rebuke anyone for worshiping him. He welcomed it. Matthew chapter 14, verse 33 says, Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. In John chapter 9, verse 38, the man who had been born blind said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. In Matthew chapter 28, the women who had come to the tomb after Jesus had already resurrected and they're, they're on their way to go tell the disciples. 
And on their way, they meet up with Jesus. And verse 9 of Matthew chapter 28 says, And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. In that same chapter, Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, it says that when they, the disciples, saw him, they worshipped him. So Jesus didn't refuse worship. He rather welcomed it. He certainly didn't rebuke anybody for it. In fact, what you find is Jesus rebuking those who reproved his worshipers, the people that, that gave his worshipers a hard time, Jesus rebuked them in, in Luke chapter 10. Martha, yeah, most of you know the story of Martha and Mary. Martha is rather upset that Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet in the position of worship. And Jesus said to her in Luke chapter 10 and verse 42, Martha, one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. In other words, Martha, hey, leave Mary alone. She's doing what she's supposed to be doing right now. She is doing what is needful. She's doing what is good. She's doing something right now that nobody will ever be able to take from her. In Matthew chapter 26, a, a, a woman came to Jesus and with all of her heart and with all of her substance, she came and worshipped at the feet of Jesus. And she poured out in worship a, a very costly ointment upon his feet. And Matthew chapter 26 and verse 8 says that the disciples were indignant about it. That's the word that the scripture used. They were indignant about it and thought that the ointment should have been sold and the money given to the poor. But Jesus said to him in Matthew 26 and verse 10, why trouble ye the woman? In other words, hey, what are you doing hassling this woman? Leave her alone, for she hath wrought a good work upon me. Hey, don't stop her from doing, uh, from doing this. This is good. This is right. Now, folks, I want you to just think about this, okay? I want you to think real hard. If Jesus Christ is not Jehovah, and, and if he's just an angel of great authority as the Jehovah's false witnesses teach, then why is it that the angels in heaven refuse worship, but Jesus didn't? And why is it that when God the Father brought the Son into the world, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6 says that the Father said, let all the angels of God worship him and if he's not Jehovah God then folks do you see this let's do away with all of the shenanigans about him being a great person and 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 don't don't like the guy did at my house this week talking about Jesus don't patronize him on my doorstep for being some wonderful savior because if he is not Jehovah God there's nothing wonderful or great about him if he's not Jehovah God He's the biggest hypocrite who ever lived. Do you understand that? If he's not, if he's anything less than Jehovah God, he's the biggest hypocrite who ever lived because to affirm that only Jehovah God is to be served and worshipped on one occasion in Matthew chapter 4 and then have people bowing down 
worshiping him, kissing his feet, anointing his feet on other occasions and accepting it, not only was he a hypocrite, he was exactly what the scribes and Pharisees accused him of being, a blasphemer. If he wasn't Jehovah God, do you understand this, folks? He committed the most heinous crime of, of all, the, the greatest sin that could ever be committed on this planet. If he isn't Jehovah God, he committed the same sin that Lucifer committed that caused him to lose his position as the anointed cherub that covereth. He usurped the position of the Most High God. Do you understand that? God has so set this thing that he has laid it out in the Scripture that if you believe that he is anything less than Jehovah God, you can't give him any, any worship. You can't do anything with him because he has set himself up as the Most High God. But folks, listen. He wasn't a hypocrite. He wasn't a blasphemer. And he didn't usurp anything. He accepted worship and never rebuked anybody for worshiping him. And the Father commanded all of the angels of heaven to worship him because he was and is Jehovah God wrapped in a human body. He received worship because he is worthy of worship. And right now, he, he is seated in heaven. And folks, at this very moment, at this very moment, I mean, if you could just be shipped to heaven, you know what's happening right around the throne of God where Jesus Christ is seated? He is clothed with the glory that was his before his incarnation, before he became a man. And you know what's happening before his throne? Even as I'm on the earth right now speaking right now, you know what's happening? He is being worshipped. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 through 14 lets us know even the words that are being spoken there. John says in verse 12, they're proclaiming with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb. Who's the Lamb, y'all? Jesus Christ. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And John says, And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto Him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. In other words, so be it. This is exactly what needs to happen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped Him that liveth forever and ever. Listen, Jesus Christ is receiving worship in heaven now in the same exact way that He did when He walked on this earth because He is, in fact, Jehovah God. And you know what? We, we've, been, we've been saying this, you know, I, I think since the, the first point. For anybody who, who's really wanting truth, and that's, there's not many out there, but for anybody who's really wanting truth, the first five points of our outline are more than sufficient evidence to prove that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God and very God. But if you ever get into a situation where you're contending for the faith, and, and in this case, excuse me, for the deity of Jesus Christ, one of the arguments that they're going to throw up to you is why didn't Jesus just come out and say, I am God, and just settle this whole issue forever? You know, And, and when they make that statement, most people don't know enough to know that what they just said isn't true. And so they're, <gasps> man, I wish you would have said that. If you would have just said that, it would have made me... 
chill out. He did do exactly that. And that's Roman numeral 6 on your outline. Jesus himself claims to be God. And turn to John chapter 8. Now, a lot of people miss the reality of what is taking place in John chapter 8 and what it is that's actually being said in this passage, namely because most of the people reading this aren't Jews, and certainly not Jews who were as well-versed in the Old Testament as the scribes and Pharisees to whom Jesus was having this discussion here in John chapter 8. But in this passage, when you understand what's really going on, what you find is that Jesus is actually making an even more explicit statement of his deity than if he would have simply said, I am God. And, and, and let me show you this. Now, we're going to read quite a few verses because I, I want you to get the whole context of, of this thing. John chapter 8, and let's pick up in, in, verse, in verse 12. Now, before we get into John chapter 8, to really set the context for you, let me let you know that Jesus Christ in the first seven chapters has already given more than sufficient evidence to prove who he is. He has already fulfilled the prophecies concerning the Messiah. It's been real clear. And the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, are having a real hard time with some of the claims that they think that he's beginning to make. And so Jesus is going to, I mean, it comes down to a major shooting match here in John chapter 8. And look at verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go. But ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. Ye judge after the flesh. I judge no man. And yet, if I judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. Now, he's already, right there, guys, he is making a major statement that he knows is going to crawl all over them. He knows how they hate when he makes a statement like that. It is also written, verse 17, in your law, that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. So there's two boys and girls. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Now you got to understand, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so what the teaching was, is this, this guy was uh, born, this Jesus guy, he was born illegitimately. you got to understand, that's what's behind their question. Where is your father? You don't even know where your father is, pal. Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. Okay, now to all of us, what is he saying? That they're the same, right? And you see, if you just let the Bible be the Bible, that's what it's saying there. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way. And ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. Now, where was he going? 
He was going back to heaven, right? Okay. Then said the Jews, will he kill himself? Because he saith, whither I go, you cannot come. And you need to understand that what the Jews at this period of time, the scribes and Pharisees, what they taught is that if a person committed suicide, they went to the darkest part of Hades. So do you see? Jesus looks at them and says, where I go, you cannot come. And they're saying, well, he must be going to commit suicide. That's, that's one place we'll never go. We'll never go to the darkest part of Hades. And you see, a lot of people even still carry that teaching today. You know, we believe in eternal security unless you commit suicide. And then, you know what the Bible says. Well, no, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. But that's, that's, what, that's what they're saying to him. He must be going to kill himself because then he'd go somewhere where we're not going to go. Verse 23, and he said unto them, Oh, really? You don't think you'll go there? You are from beneath. I am from above. Ye are of this world. I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you, You shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Then they said unto him, Who art thou? Don't, don't read that like, Oh, really? Who are you? These guys are ticked. They're saying, You? Who are you, pal? And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning, I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not, but he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said the Jews to uh, Jesus, to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, Free? What? We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. Now what is so wild is at this very time they're in bondage to the Romans. And they wouldn't accept it. Huh, us? We were never in bondage to any man. I mean, what, what about the Babylonian captivity, boys? What's up with that? How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? We're free. Jesus answers them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And you see, these guys have prided themselves in not being sinners. They're above all of that. And what he keeps trying to do is press the issue that drove them nuts. That he was God and that they were sinners. The servant, verse 35, abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth. If the son therefore shall make you free, he shall be free indeed. In other words, you guys are in sin. The only way you're coming out is through me. I know that you're Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus saith unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Uh-oh. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, See it? He be not born of fornication like you. You see, that's the implication. We have one father. You don't even know who yours is. Our father is God. 
Jesus saith to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word, you're of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And I say the truth. Why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast the devil? Hey, haven't we been right all along? I mean, you're just proving it, Jesus. The things you're saying to us, it just proves that you have a devil. Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my Father, and ye do dishonor me. And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall not taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead? Whom makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom ye say, that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him. But I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I'd be a liar just like you, but I know him and keep his saying, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it by faith and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, thou art not yet 50 years old and hast thou seen Abraham I mean, I've read this whole passage to bring you to this verse. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And what you've got to understand about that statement right there, for those of you who are not familiar with the Bible, is uh, know this. Jesus knew exactly what it is that they were asking. And that's not all. He also knew exactly what he was saying with the way that he answered them. You see, Jesus knew full well that these guys knew how Jehovah God, the Jehovah God of the Old Testament, that they claimed was their father. They, Jesus knew that they knew how he had revealed himself the very first time to Moses. And do you remember we looked at this a couple of weeks ago from Exodus chapter 3. Moses you know, it has this meeting with God at the burning bush, and you know he, he's saying, "I want you to, you know, lead my children. I want you to go to Pharaoh and do all this deal." And and Moses is like, "Well, you know, that's that's, that's real cool, but uh, when I go and I say, you know, that so and so sent me, who, who's so and so?" He says to God, "Who do I tell him you you are? What shall I tell him your name is?" And God says in Exodus chapter three and verse fourteen, "Tell them, I am, hath sent you." I am. Okay, now look at verse 58 again. Do you see what Jesus was doing when he answered the scribes and Pharisees in verse 58? Oh my goodness, y'all, don't miss this. He was telling them he was God, 
using the same name Jehovah himself used when he revealed himself to Moses. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And listen, there is nothing that Jesus could have said right there that would have been a stronger claim of deity. Saying he was the I am carried with it further implications of his deity than simply saying, I am God. Do you see that? And if someone wants to say, well, no, that isn't what he was, he was meaning there. He was just saying that he existed before Abraham. And you see, folks, the Jehovah's False Witnesses and other cults, they'll give you that. They'll give you that he existed before his physical birth and that God created him somewhere along the way back there. And, oh, oh yeah, yeah, we know. He was, he was the firstborn angel. And, and so, sure, yeah, he existed before Abraham. And, and that's all that he's saying here. Look at verse 58 again. If that's what Jesus would have meant, you know what he would have said? Before Abraham was, I what? I was. Before Abraham was, I was. But he didn't say that because that's not what he meant. He knew exactly what he was saying and he said it exactly that way because in one sweeping move, he wanted to affirm the fact that not only was he God, but he wanted to settle the fact of what God he really was, that he was, in fact, Jehovah God. And if you doubt that, watch their immediate response to his claim of being the I Am. Verse 59. Then, I mean, they had had it then. Then they took up stones to cast at him. You see, they understood the claim that he was making. And that's why they pick up stones, because that's what Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 16 said that you do to a blasphemer. They know he's not claiming to be a created being. They know he's not claiming to be an angel. They know that he is claiming right here to be God, the great I Am, Jehovah God. And let, let me take you to another place, John chapter 10, just over, over a page or two. John chapter 10. And let's pick up in verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. I'm not saying it anymore. Now let the works bear witness. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto him, said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Now watch this. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hands. Do you see the connection? Hey, my followers, no one's getting out of my hands. Did you understand what I said? Nobody's getting them out of my Father's hands. And then he, so that nobody could miss it, look at what he says in verse 30. I and my Father are one. You know what he's claiming there? 
he was claiming to be Jehovah God. And if you doubt that, watch their response in verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Watch what Jesus says in verse 32. I, I, I love this. I mean, he's going he's gonna to press the issue, man. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. Now, for which of those works do you stone me? Okay, and, and you see, what, what he's, he's setting them up. What he wants to do is he wants them, he wants to drive the issue home. He's going to drive it home. Watch what he's in verse 33. The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. You see that? Jesus so worked that conversation so that when you came in your Bible and you're reading it, if you wanted to find an attestation of what Jesus was saying, you got it right there. When Jesus said, I and my Father are one, those people understood exactly what he meant. He was claiming to be God. And that's why they picked up stones to stone him again, because he claimed to be God. Let me take you to one other place where Jesus claims that he is God. And this is the verse that actually got this this whole six-part sub-series going in the first place. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. And, and you know, uh, as you're making your way over there, you don't necessarily need to stop at it. We're not going to hit on this specifically anywhere, but 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 just just listen to this. Have you ever have you ever checked it out there in Hebrews chapter one? What it is that God the Father calls the Son? What name do you think He picks? Okay, listen to it. Verse eight. But unto the Son He saith. Now this is Hebrews chapter one. But unto the Son He saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. God the Father speaking to the Son. Thy throne, O God is forever and ever. Again, that, that's free. Okay, uh, Revelation chapter 1 is where we are. Revelation chapter 1. And of course, we, we've talked about this ever since we started the book of Revelation, that the, the book is written to reveal who Jesus Christ really is. The book is written to unveil Him. You see that in verse 1. When, when He came to this earth at His first coming, He came veiled in a human body of flesh and God lets us know in the first phrase of the very first verse that the purpose of this book of the Bible is to lift the veil. It is the revealing, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ so that there would never be any doubt throughout the course of history who Jesus Christ was and who He is. And the first eight verses, as we've talked about so much now, they serve as the introduction to the book. And when we come to verse 8, Jesus Himself speaks and reveals that He is, in fact, Jehovah God. Okay, Now, that's the purpose of this book, to reveal who He is. Now He speaks. And, and, and what He does is he, he, he claims to possess, in this verse, verse 8, the same attributes and titles that are true of Jehovah and could only be true of Jehovah. First of all, what Jesus does in verse 8 is He claims to be omniscient. He claims to be omniscient, O-M-N-I-S-C-I-E-N-T. And look at what Jesus says in verse 8. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the Alpha and Omega. Now, I want you to think about that. What is it that Jesus means when he says, I'm the Alpha and Omega? And please understand, he's not just using, using flowery mumbo-jumbo here. 
joy. This is, well, there might be a nice way to put this in, in a poetic way to, to be able to, to, to make a statement. No, that's not what's happening here. Okay, we know this. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. In fact, the word alphabet comes the word alphabet comes from the first two letters of the Greek alphabet, right? You know this? Alpha and beta. Okay, that's where we get the word alphabet. Okay? Jesus says, I am alpha, the first letter, I am the last letter. Okay, now but what is he meaning by that? Well, an alphabet is the tool that we use to communicate through language or through literature, right? Okay, language is, is simply letters of the alphabet that are arranged into words that are spoken to communicate. And, and literature is basically the same thing. It, it's letters of the alphabet that are arranged to form words to communicate through what is, is written, okay? But understand this. All of the knowledge all of the wisdom, all of the understanding that the human race has accumulated is somehow expressed through what? Through the alphabet, right? So do you see what Jesus is saying here? He is saying, I am God's alphabet. I am the, the alpha and omega. I'm, I'm the first letter and the last letter and every letter in between. I, in other words, I'm the, I'm the A to, to Z. I'm the, the first and final source of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. I am the omniscient one. I am the accumulation and expression of all knowledge and wisdom and understanding. I am every letter of every word of God's communication to man. You remember John chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is every word of God, and He is every letter of every word of God. So He says, first of all, I am Alpha and Omega, and He makes the claim to be omniscient. Second, He claims to be omnipresent. He says, I am the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. And notice, look at it again, He didn't say, I was the beginning and I'll be the ending. Now, that would have been a great claim. I mean, it would have been a claim that no, no human could have ever make, or any created being for that matter. But the claim is even greater than that. It's present tense. I am the beginning and I am the ending, but at the same time, do you see that? He is omnipresent. Again, a claim that can only be made by God Himself. But not only is the Lord Jesus Christ omniscient. Not only is he omnipresent and claimed to be so, he also claims in this verse to be omnipotent, all-powerful, almighty. Look, look again, verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, watch this now, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Now listen, only God could make that claim. And of course, that's why Jesus makes it. And the thing that makes it even more significant is the fact that the same exact words were used to describe the omnipotence of God the Father in verse 4. Do you remember that? Look back there. You remember when we came through this and we talked about the greeting of grace and peace from the Godhead that is expressed in three persons or the, the, the Trinity? Look at verse 4 again. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace 
from Him which is and which was and which is to come. Now in verse 4, guys, that's God the Father. And from the seven spirits which are before His throne. That's God the Spirit. Verse 5. And from Jesus Christ. And there's God the Son. There's the, the You see the Trinity. The three in one. And the point I want you to see is that when God the Father expresses His greeting, He does so in verse 4 by distinguishing Himself by His eternality and His omnipotence. Characteristics that can be only true of Jehovah God. And He does so by saying that He is He which is and which was and which is to come. And so that you would know exactly what it is that Jesus is claiming in verse 8. He uses, Jesus uses here the same exact words to distinguish Himself as the one, the true, the only Jehovah God. And just so, I mean, if, if, if you missed that, I mean, it's only four verses away. I mean, if you missed that, just so that nobody could ever have any excuse for possibly missing what it is that Jesus was claiming, he just flat out tells you at the end of verse 8, He's the Almighty. Do you see that? The Lord Jesus Christ Himself claims in verse 8 to possess the qualities, the titles, and the attributes that are true only of Jehovah God. Only Jehovah God is omniscient. Think about it. Only Jehovah God is omnipresent. Only Jehovah God is omnipotent. You see, no created being could ever make that claim. For example, let's talk about Lucifer for just a second. And of course, he became Satan. He is the highest ranking of all of the beings that God ever created. And folks, listen, he is incredibly knowing. I mean, you take the accumulated knowledge of every person in this room, and folks, we have not scratched the surface of the intellect of Satan. He is incredibly knowing, but he's not all-knowing. Only Jehovah God is omniscient. And beyond that, Satan is unbelievably fast. I mean, he, he can travel at the speed of light. He is an angel of light, but he can't be two places at one time. He's fast, oh, unbelievably fast, but he's not omnipresent. Only Jehovah God is omnipresent. And Satan is extremely powerful. Jude, verse 9, says that even Michael the archangel wouldn't bring a railing accusation against him. Oh my goodness. He's extremely powerful, but he's not all-powerful. Only Jehovah God is omnipotent. And yet Jesus Christ makes the claim of all three. Omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence because he is, in fact, Jehovah God. And over the last six weeks, God, God has, has shown that. I mean, not just from the things we looked at today. To me, hey, the things we've looked at today, proof irrefutable. I mean, you, you, you can't deny it. And it's been that way every, every single week. I mean, there, there's, it, this is something, the deity of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ being Jehovah God, it's not open to question. There's no doubts. There's no hesitations. There's no deliberations that need to be made. It's a signed, sealed, delivered deal. Jesus Christ is Jehovah God. There's nothing more that needs to be said, nothing more that needs to be added than that. But you remember six weeks ago, and I know some of you guys are looking at the study sheet, and oh my goodness, look at how much more. You know what? We're almost done. We're going to be able to cruise through this really quick, and we need to, we need to finish it today. But you remember six weeks ago, I, I played with you when we came to verse 8 of Revelation chapter 1. I, I played 
devil's advocate with you, literally. Remember that? Uh, and and I, I acted like I was a gainsayer, uh, an opposer. I'm using that word that, that is used in Titus chapter 1, for those of you not familiar with the term. It means opposer. Okay? And, and I, I played like I was a Jehovah's false witness. And what I did is I used your Bible, the Bible that we use, to teach something different than what we've taught over the last several weeks about Jesus Christ being Jehovah God. And... Uh, and I know that all of you folks who were here that morning, you've been just kind of waiting. I mean, you, you know that the end of this thing is going to be he's going to somehow come and he's going to answer all of those things that were causing me to get just a little bit hot and a little bit flushed and bothered and all of that on that morning. And I, I want you to know, we, we have already answered it through the, the six points on, on this outline. But I do want to give you something specific because the fact of the matter is I did exactly, that day, I did exactly to you what they do to you, okay? And, and, you, and you need to under, understand that. And, you know, all these verses that are just, you know, coming at you at 150 miles an hour, and, and we're going, oh, my goodness, you know, am I going to be able to answer all of this, this stuff? And, and what you need to know, let me free you up. This is going to be exciting here. Every one of their objections, every one of their arguments can be understood can be explained by understanding one very simple passage of Scripture. You don't have to worry about, okay, no, in this one, I answer this one, in this one, I answer this. You know what? You know the answers already, but let me just take you to one passage of, of Scripture. And you see, again, what, what I did to you, what they did to you, what they, what they do is they start dissecting specific overarching truths about Jehovah from what Jehovah himself clearly revealed about how he would manifest himself on this planet. And you can't ever let that get out of your mind. And you see, if you let them force you into answering specifics apart from the whole, man, they've got you right where they want you. You, you know, you'll start getting hot and you know, and, and all of this and you know, start getting up, upset with yourself because you, know, you, you don't know the answers to these things. Now, folks, you've you got to remember. That's why we've taken so much time on this. You've got to remember what the Scripture says about them. Okay, Not what I say. Remember what the Scripture says about them. They are liars. They are deceivers. They are not just coming and giving truth to a person. They're deceivers. They're seducers. Their goal is to dissect this thing out. Now, again, we're dealing with two things. Human instrumentality, the source, the source behind what they're doing is going to try to dissect these little truths out there and get you apart from the whole of revealed truth and get you all messed up. But let me take you to, to one passage that can answer all of the arguments of the gainsayers. What passage do you think it is? Philippians chapter 2. Turn over there and let me just walk you really quick through this passage. Philippians chapter 2. And let's pick up in verse 5. Paul writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, make sure you see that. God's form is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus Christ is the express image of God the Father's person. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 says that 
that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. It also says in the book of Colossians that He is the fullness of the the Godhead bodily. And, And He's certainly not less than God the Father. Quite to the contrary, He is equal with God. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 again. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And we've seen that all through the last six weeks. Jesus Christ is the equivalent of Jehovah God. He shares the same titles. Do you remember that? The Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Creator, the Rock, the Savior, the First and the Last, the I Am. He he shares the same attributes. Remember, He knows hearts. He is eternal. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He shares the same power. He shares the same authority. He shares the same nature. And for Him to profess equality with the Father, what verse 6 is saying is it isn't stealing something that doesn't belong to Him. You see, that's what a robber is. And that's what the scribes and Pharisees accused Jesus of being. You understand that? A robber. A God robber. A thief. And that's why they crucified Him between two what? Two thieves. John 5 and verse 18 says that the Jews sought to kill Jesus because He claimed to be Exactly what verse 6 says here. He claimed to be equal with God. They thought it was robbery. They thought he is a man who's trying to be what God is. And what the verse is, is, is saying is, verse 6, it wasn't robbery. He wasn't a thief. He wasn't taking something that didn't belong to him. He is equal with God. And he's always been equal with God because he has always been the form of God. But though He is God, and though He is the form of God, and equal to God in every single dimension, in every single aspect, look at verse 7. He made Himself of no reputation. And and, and notice, look at the verse. It wasn't that He was of no reputation and He tried to make Himself the form of God. It wasn't that He was of no reputation and He tried to make Himself equal with God. He was God, verse 6. He was equal with God and made Himself of no reputation. He entered this earth, how? In a dirty, stinking stable. He grew up in the despised city of Nazareth. The Bible says He never learned letters. He didn't go to college. I mean, he knew them, but he didn't, he didn't have an education. Isaiah 53 and verse 2 says that he wasn't a, a very good-looking guy. I mean, you just go through. He made himself of no reputation. By the time his his earthly ministry was done, he wasn't just of no reputation. He had a bad one, right? And go on in verse 7. And took upon him the form of a servant. Now, Now check this out. Here he was, the form of God. And he took the form of a servant. You see, man had an incredible need. The need of a Savior to free him from the bondage of his sin. The book of Romans says that we are the, we're the servants of sin. And you see, God is the only one who could meet the need. So Jesus Christ, the form of God and equal with God, took the form of a servant, which required that he become a man. Verse 7 goes on. And was made in the likeness of men. I mean, 
Imagine that. God with, with arms and, and legs and, and hands and, and feet and eyes and ears and, and, and nose. Verse 8, and being found in fashion as a man. That is, he got hungry and, and tired and sleepy. On occasions he got angry. Sometimes he, he was thirsty. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And if all of that wasn't humbling enough, just I mean, just the whole thing of, of God becoming a human, of God becoming one of us, verse 8 says he humbled himself. I mean, even beyond that, and became obedient unto death. I mean, imagine that one now. God dying. But even more than that, the way he died, look at the last part of verse 8, even the death of the cross, I mean, the most shameful death imaginable. I mean, here he is. He is Jehovah God, clothed with glory, and here he is on that cross, hanging naked before men. And here he is, Jehovah God, who was the one who breathed life into man. And here he is hanging on a cross as a man, gasping for every single breath that he had. God, not just humbling himself to become a man, and not just humbling himself to be put to death, he says, but the death of the cross, for crying out loud. The most excruciating form of death. The, the most lingering kind of death. The most horrendous thing that has ever taken place in the history of the world, and yet the most wondrous thing that has ever taken place in the history of the world. Jehovah, check it out now. Jehovah God Himself fulfilling exactly what He Himself prophesied in the Old Testament that He Himself would do. He prophesied that He would come to this earth in a human body by way of a virgin birth and all for the purpose, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, all for the purpose of becoming sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him and be restored to the relationship with Him that we were created to have. And I promise you, folks, I promise you, when the gainsayers want to find a point of contention about Jesus Christ being Jehovah God, it is going to be in that period in verses 7 and 8. What you can never forget is that though verses 7 and 8 are true, they in no way, shape, or form do anything to diminish the deity of Christ they are exactly how the Old Testament said that Jehovah God would manifest Himself on this earth. And while He did, verse 6, remain just as true. You understand that? He maintained His absolute deity as 100% Jehovah God and yet at the same time being 100% man. And you know why the gainsayers have such a hard time with that? Again, because of the source. Because of Satan. 
And he hates that because he knows that Jehovah God came in that way and that's the only way that any person can find the forgiveness of sin and come into that relationship. So you know he's going to fight it. But you know why they have such a hard time with it? It's what 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 calls a great mystery. God manifest in the flesh. This is who Jehovah prophesied through Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14 would be Emmanuel. Remember what his name is? God with us. And folks, that's who Jesus Christ is. Jehovah God manifest in the flesh. Jehovah God with us. And there's no doubt. There's no doubt about that. And before you pack up, you can put your study sheet away if you need to do that. But, but man, don't, don't leave Philippians chapter 2 here. Because I want you to see this. Every single person, because of what Christ has done, verse 9, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. The book of Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says, It is the only name under heaven, listen, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Hey, listen. There is no other way to find the forgiveness of your sin that separates you from Jehovah God than for Jehovah God who was manifested on this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. If you do not come through Jesus Christ and what He did, you will not be saved. There is none other name, other heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And let, let me tell you what reality is, folks. Reality is every single human being who has ever lived on this planet will bow their knee and will make the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. The sad truth is, for most of them, it's going to be too late. You're going to say it. And you will bow. It's just a matter of when. And you know why God brought you to a service like this? So you'd know beyond any shadow of a doubt that this whole thing in the Bible, it's not taking a, a, a leap in the dark with anything. It's not just blind faith. Man, God has laid this thing out. He has revealed to you in a book of prophecy exactly who He is. He, he, he lets you know every detail about how Jehovah God would visit this planet. He fulfilled every single one of those so that you could come to a service like this and have some jerk like me stand up here with the Bible and say, Jesus Christ is Jehovah God only hope of salvation. If you're here this morning, you've never received Jesus Christ, I want you to know, Jehovah God has done every single thing possible to save you. There's only one thing He can't do or won't do. He won't in this life cause you to bow your knee. He won't cause you to open your mouth and from your heart call on Him Lord. That's something that you've got to do. He's revealed His truth to you. And now, what will you do with it?
it's about him.